Happy Monday, my friends. This is Amy Lee San Juan, and I'd like to welcome you back to another amazing episode of Cisco Champion Radio. Today, we're talking about cognitive collaboration with distinguished engineer Keith Griffin and our esteemed Cisco champions, Amar, David, Sebastian, and Sebrin. So over the course of the next half hour or so, we're going to dive deeper into the innovations in this fascinating portfolio. And just a reminder, you can always learn more about today's topic simply by clicking on the link provided in the description below. All right, so let's get started with the introductions. Keith, we're going to start with you. Can you tell us more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And thanks for having me uh, today. Uh, my name is Keith Griffin. I'm a distinguished engineer in the Office of CTO for the Collaboration Technology Group. I'm also the site leader for Cisco in Galway, uh, where we have an engineering group that develops some of our WebEx Teams uh, clients calling and also uh, our um, uh, uh, device integration. Uh, so uh, mostly I focus on a day-to-day -day basis on the AI and machine learning workloads that we carry out um, in the collaboration space. And that's where, uh, where I guess I'm talking to you today about cognitive collaboration. Wonderful. Happy to have you. All right. On to our Cisco champions. Amr, we're going to start with you. Where are you from and what do you do? Okay, my name is uh, Amr Nasher. I'm working as a business development manager in a Cisco partner called Tawassal based in Saudi Arabia, which focus more on uh, collaboration solutions from Cisco. My Twitter handle is um, Amr underscore Nasher, A-M-R underscore N-A-S-H-E-R. You can also find me on the show notes. And this is my fourth year as a Cisco champion and hopefully to be the fifth Wow, you're a veteran. Didn't realize that. Awesome. All right, David, we're going to move on to you. Same question. Hello, everybody. David Macias out of uh, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, to be specific. Uh, I am a contact center consultant, do things, all things contact center, uh, Cisco, among other, other competing technologies. And uh, you can find me on the social networks under D Macias. All right, Sebastian. Uh, hello, my name is Sebastian Leusler. I'm working as a solution architect for collaboration solutions at Deutsche Telekom in Germany. And my Twitter handle is sleuser, S-L-E-U-S-E-R. All right, Sebrin, last but not least. Hey, my name is uh, Sebrin Bergerkamp, owner of Three Corners, and we are located in the Netherlands. And we as a company focus on uh, Cisco collaboration and contact center portfolio and also help uh, partners with uh, creating a service offering. My uh, Twitter handle is at SebrinB. All right, so we all called out our Twitter handles, but Keith, I didn't prompt you for yours. Do, do you have a Twitter handle? Yes, I do. It's uh, TechKeith. Very nice. I like it. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to ask you to help us set up the conversation. Um, you know, the work behind cognitive collaboration didn't start recently. Can you give us more background around the strategy and when this really began in earnest at Cisco? Yeah, and there's uh, quite some history to it at, at this time. Um, I, I think it really started for real with the machine learning and AI um, focus around the 2015 timeframe. But even before that, uh, back, say, around... Uh, 2010, 2009, 2010, we were really focused on a lot of uh, 
graph-based underlying data and graph-based uh, systems that were based on linked data and using um, uh, a lot of uh, semantic techniques. And th that gave a real focus on what at the time I was calling contextual collaboration. Uh, and, and, and that set of technologies didn't break through in the collaboration space in the same way that I might have expected it did in other areas. But then um, at the same time as that, in the research space, the academic research space, there were a lot of breakthroughs in um, what I suppose has become modern deep learning. Uh, there were uh, several universities that carried out really excellent research into, frankly, you know, not all of them were very new techniques, but it was the first time some of these techniques became practical and they became practical uh, uh, through a combination of three things. The algorithms and mathematical techniques that might have been uh, around for quite some time. The availability of compute, which wasn't around before really in such a way, but it was with uh, platforms like uh, Google Cloud, AWS, Azure started coming to the fore. So like with a credit card, I could access compute that uh, wasn't really there uh, before. Um, and the same, uh, you know, we in those early days used a lot of the, they say the Cisco uh, UCS platform for just developing, you know, directly the, the training uh, models on there. And then the last item, which really is the, the, the key to success for her that breakthrough in deep learning machine learning was the availability of data. Um, so having uh, large data sets that were uh, available for academics, researchers, um, and, and uh, those trying to break through with this technology, um, there was uh, access to that that just wasn't there before. When you bring the three of those together, there was that perfect storm that created uh, this new wave of AI or machine learning. Um, and like I said, that happened around the 2010, 2011 timeframe, uh, or at least that's when I started uh, picking it up. And then uh, by around 2015, we were starting to get very serious about it within the collaboration group we were asking ourselves uh, and started with asking one very simple question what difference could machine learning and deep learning make that would positively uh, would cause a positive influence on the user experience for a collaboration user and it was a very open-ended question it was you know we already had lots of techniques maybe problems were already solved maybe uh, new problems were yet to be solved and the way we started thinking about it was um, could we apply machine learning to solve a problem that previously could not be solved or could only be solved very expensively, but with machine learning might have a more uh, engineering cost-efficient solution. And uh, around that time frame, we started playing with some of the technology by about 2017. Uh, we had uh, uh, developed noise detection and a couple of other techniques that proved to us that yes, you could use this technology uh, in a way that uh, it, it solved uh, problems that weren't solvable or were expensive to solve before. That gave us great confidence in the area. And then that set, set us uh, really on a path of deciding that we need to go all in on this space. Um, we started uh, training and making training available on machine learning software development internally for our engineering group. And we also set on a fairly aggressive acquisition path um, at this stage, uh, our, our investment, um, at a guess, would exceed a billion dollars in the AI space uh, in terms of acquisition and uh, engineering investment, um, which is, is pretty impressive. Uh, and, and it also is a reflection on the fact that the strategy called for not just tech, but expertise and people. We were able to invest in the companies that were experts in each of the, the various areas. Um, and we set out uh, at, at the time, at the very beginning, we set out a three-pillar strategy that later became a four-pillar strategy with the addition of relationship intelligence. But the initial three pillars were uh, computer vision, multimodal bots and assistants, and audio and speech technologies. 
And these were the three pillars that we figured we could apply the, the set of machine learning technologies that uh, could really make that difference in our in our user experience. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, through our experimentation at the time, that uh, proved to be the the case. And since then, um, you know, we've we've built out in each of those areas, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a, a little bit more uh, later. But it led us uh, onto a path of uh, you know acquiring companies in those spaces. We decided to build mostly in the computer vision area. Uh, we decided to acquire in um, uh, in uh, bots and assistants uh, with MindMeld, with audio and speech uh, technology, for example, meeting transcription with uh, Voicea, most recently in the audio space with the acquisition of uh, Babel Labs for noise removal, um, and then in the relationship intelligence space uh, with a company for uh, people insights and, uh, and, and briefings. So uh, through the combinations of those acquisitions, plus our own build uh, type of, uh, of strategy, um, it really started bringing that together. So, you know, back to your question, it, yeah, it's, there's quite a bit of history to it at this stage for something that is actually still an advanced technology. And we're, we're pretty proud of being able to bring all of that together and at least get some technology out in each of those areas initially, which is making a difference for, uh, for our users today. Uh, but we're by no means done. I think we're very much at the, the starting point and uh, we, have, we have a long way to go, uh, I think, in, in, uh, in seeing that strategy through. Maybe the last point I'll just say on that uh, by introduction is it's somewhat unusual in the technology space to be able to set out and stick with a strategy for that amount of time, right? This is, uh, the, we're now like five or six years into that and having really good results and, and you know, continuing to uh, to invest in the, in the space. And it just shows that machine learning and deep learning in this area, it's not a fad. It's not like a, you know, a, a passing a set of features. I and mean, this very much is a, a transformational technology and it's something that makes a difference to many of our, our users. So Keith, question for you on um, when you started in 2015 and even before that, right? You said you guys were doing, using um, some of the technology that was in vogue at the time in 2010 and 2012. Um, as you look at, if think back on you in 2015 and what you were sort of envisioning and where you where we are today, is there anything that you like are hoping that like uh, comes to fruition soon or you just don't see it come to fruition because the technology is not there? Yeah, there's still a lot of challenges. I mean, um, it's you know there there are there there well there's so many different uh, uh, challenges uh, in in terms of uh, maturing some of the technologies and keeping up, right? So one of the biggest uh, shifts that I think we're about to see is the in the the early days of this, like the last five years or so, we saw a lot of uh, solutions being deployed heavily in the in the supervised machine learning space. So you train a model. It carries out a task. You're happy with its accuracy and the level of certainty that it provides. And then you can, with confidence, put it into an application, uh, knowing and being in control of, of, of what it's going to do. Um, but, you know, over time, those types of models will become cumbersome. They're not today, but they will. Um, and really, uh, the, the future has to be in unsupervised or semi-supervised uh, machine learning. But of course, as a developer, as a data scientist, you have to have a lot more um, uh, you know, a lot more confidence in what it's actually going to do because big difference with traditional software development is machine learning uh, techniques are making predictions and acting on predictions. So you need to be pretty certain about what your software is going to do. So that transition from uh, supervised to unsupervised and the techniques that are associated uh, with it 
um, I, I think is is really the the next area of focus. And of course, like that's it's not it may be new to us in the collaboration space, but you know there's lots of breakthroughs in uh, autonomous vehicles and other parts of the of you know of the world where uh, of the tech world, I should say, uh, you know where there are advances being made in in those uh, technologies and and techniques. So that that's kind of one area that I would say that uh, you know is yet to be untapped um, is the unsupervised space and uh, allowing the systems a little bit more uh, more freedom. So one one more you talked about the uh, relationship uh, intelligence was the a fourth pillar that was added um, from the original ones that you had. Uh, to me, that one is the one that's most abstract, maybe because it doesn't really apply to my day to day. So curious if you could maybe give me an example or give us an example of like, okay, this is where this use case or this this pillar makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, and um, it is it is also the one that's um, maybe furthest on the uh, that that spectrum of machine learning, right? So, so when you look at things like maybe noise removal or, uh, or or the speech transcription, meeting transcription, there's like a heavy use of machine learning there. On the um, on the relationship intelligence, it's more on the scale of doing things like predictive analytics and clustering algorithms uh, around trying to identify. The, the uniqueness of a person or a profile in a crowd, right? So what I mean by that is um, if, if you have a system that is uh, bringing in information to, to dynamically curate a profile for somebody. So when you're meeting me for the first time, you can get informed about who I am, I work at Cisco, what my background is, um, what my maybe recent, any recent publications or anything like that would show up. Um, at the same time, you don't want to uh, find out about my Strava bike ride at the weekend, right? Because that's not really pertinent to the professional conversation, right? So, um, so what, what, what uh, the, the way that it's relevant in this space uh, is that we use a lot of um, uh, advanced techniques to to actually curate and identify that that singular person. I mean, my name is not unique. There are other Keith Griffins. So we often talk about it, um, at, you know, at least in the Western world of solving the John Smith problem, right? So that's a very, very common name. Um, and if, uh, it, if there's going to be lots of John Smith, so how do you know that the system can accurately create the correct profile for each of the John Smiths out there? And it uses uh, very interesting techniques that uh, our company team uh, calls uh, digi your digital exhaust. So it looks that almost like breadcrumbs of well is that the same john smith that you know was educated at a certain uh, university and went maybe early in career was at a certain company and there's a trajectory that it can follow through and give it that level of, of certainty but you know i'm explaining a little bit about how it's relevant in the in in the machine learning and ai and cognitive space in general but your question is also about the use case and the you know the end user aspect of that where it's extremely useful is um, taking that uh, manual searching and curation of data that people often have to do before they get to a meeting or maybe in a meeting somebody shows up and they're wondering well who is this and uh, they like googling a name or they're searching on uh, you know professional profile apps like LinkedIn or others to find out a little bit more um, but what if we can just deliver that uh, what if we can make that part of the user experience so you know who you're meeting with you can maybe even dispense with or make a, a very brief the the pre-meeting briefing right where maybe as a sales team you might get together and figure out so who's going to be uh, showing up you know from the customer or from a partner company and that you want to um, you know you want you want to know who the key stakeholders are and uh, uh, that type of, in, of information well wouldn't it be nice if you could get that delivered to you in a briefing so that you just know who you're meeting with you don't have to have a meeting about the meeting um, you have that information delivered to you 
So no introductions anymore, Keith. Well, I think we'll still do the introductions. We'll always want that, and we'll always want that uh, that human contact and the interaction. But um, but certainly uh, maybe less in the briefing side, and we can be a bit more informed before we get into the introductions. Because I was just wondering on that topic, can you can I as a as a meeting entity um, um, uh, allow me to sh to 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 show what you are you see you are, you are going to see from me? Um, do you mean uh, like to pre-share uh, information uh, in a meeting or? No, but the, the, the company information, my information is guarded somehow and, and, and some, some machine intelligent engine is, is figuring out what it will show, which information oh, yeah. it will show you, show from me to you. Yeah, absolutely. Can I... I mean, that's absolutely critical because as a user, you need to be in control of your data, uh, right? So you absolutely have control over that. Um, you know, you can go to uh, uh, people.webex.com or you can access it directly from the client uh, screen itself and hit settings. You can decide then you have very granular control over what gets displayed. You can turn the entire profile off. You can decide I want to show everything, but I don't want to show my education background. Uh, or you might want to update certain pieces of information uh, in my case, you know, the, the bio uh, that's displayed was uh, it, it, an original one was actually pulled from a university research board that I was on and I preferred my Cisco bio. So I opted for that one to be used. So it's good to have that level of control and, and interaction on there. Um, another thing that I, I, you know, just to share a like personal story on it, um, in my education background, it looked like I had uh, three pieces of education or three awards, but only two of them were complete. So it looked like I had failed something and it was actually <laughs> accurate information from the university. But what happened was uh, I got a degree and then I enrolled for uh, several years later for a research master's. And then halfway through that, I opted to flip that to a PhD. So the research masters didn't have an end date and it just looked like it was failed. So I thought, okay, you know what, let's just remove that one and leave the two valid uh, outputs. And again, it's my information, I'm in control of it, so I could go and uh, and do that. And I think it's absolutely critical uh, that that is the case. It's not, you know, it would not be good practice to just generate information and then not have the user have any control over that. The only caveat that I will add to it is, and it's not, it's not really a caveat, it's more of a, again, a control point, is that um, the piece that's not editable is the corporate directory information, which comes from that organization's corporate directory. So it's set there, the IT admin has control over that, and that's only visible to those inside the same organization. So it's not displayed externally, but it's also not editable by the end user because it's the organization's data. And it's really all just down to data ownership and data stewardship in, the, in that case. One question you mentioned earlier that um, that it requires lots of data to have the software predictable. You introduced last year features like virtual backgrounds, noise removal, everything calculated on on the user's device. What was the main driver behind those additional efforts to make it on the user's device? Yeah, um, that's a great question, and and thanks for also the reminder of the some of the features. I, I failed to cover those in the in the introduction. Uh, I just covered the main pillars, and yeah, uh, in the computer vision space, 
virtual backgrounds and background blur have been a core uh, uh, part of what everybody is doing as we all work from home, right? So there's a renewed importance in that type of, of functionality. Um, and the same with uh, noise removal, of course. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, we implemented those in a way that they're very much processed uh, locally on the device. Uh, I have seen other solutions out there where maybe the video is processed in the cloud and a background is, is implemented there. And of course, technically, if you're looking at it in a technical, almost like academic way, um, it's valid to do the video processing maybe where, wherever you like. There's efficiencies for doing it in the cloud, uh, for sure. Uh, but for the type of customers that we have, there's generally uh, you know, a, a concern around data privacy and not having uh, additional software processing uh, cloud site or anywhere else if it can be avoided. And in this case, it, it can be avoided. These are workloads that, while they're absolutely um, uh, technically possible to do in the cloud, we thought we would lead with them on the device. And maybe in the future, you know, as there's more confidence in this type of software that it, they could be cloud-centric or they could become uh, more of a cloud workload. But uh, for the initial feature introduction, uh, we felt that it was important that the processing happens right at the device. And there's two big benefits fits to that one is is from a data privacy perspective nothing is then like leaving the device right we're interpreting every frame of video and we're replacing the background and doing that overlay right there so there's no software agent in the cloud or anywhere else that's then uh, intercepting the the video so most of of the the companies that use our, our software uh, like that from the point of view that it's uh, just local and and in the client um, the second benefit, and this is just a good old, like a, a typical engineering requirement thing, right? Is that, um, well, like if you're removing noise, guess where the noise happens? Not in the cloud. It happens right there at the microphone around you in the area. So if you can remove it as close to the source as possible, um, that's pretty good from an engineering practice perspective. And like I said earlier, uh, you know, there's merits uh, to doing the cloud side as well. But again, when we lean back to that data privacy principle, uh, you know, if we can avoid having an extra piece of software that's processing audio in the cloud and doing this right on the device or as close to uh, to the source as possible, then we found that that uh, when we talk to our users uh, and to, especially to IT admins and uh, uh, you know data privacy advocates, that 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 was their their preference. Um, but like I say, I think and it's inevitable certain workloads will have to be uh, cloud side as as we go to the future. But yeah, those were really the two big drivers in, in terms of that's it's where it made a lot of sense from an engineering perspective and then also uh, data privacy. Cool. Yeah, it was really helpful to get the approvals from everybody to enable those features. Um, you also mentioned the acquisitions you made, like MindMeld and everything. Um, you put the MindMeld um, converse conversational AI as open source online. What was why you took that decision? Yeah, that's it's an interesting uh, looking back on on that, and uh, really it was um, aimed at uh, helping to push along the natural language processing and conversational AI industry at a, at an industry level. Right, there's it's nice to be able to contribute and to give back uh, to the industry, um, but also it's uh, you know it 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 uh, helps to by providing these tools, it helps people to access the functionality and be able to do more and to discover and get that buy-in that this is a technology that works and can work really well. 
Um, so while there's a certain amount of, of risk, I mean, we provide the platform that we're actually developing our own uh, WebEx assistant on, right? So there's some level of competitive risk. At the same time, we thought the benefits outweighed that risk. And in, in general, it's better for the industry to have, um, you know, lots of available toolkits. And, and it was really interesting to see how it got used. We saw people using it in uh, areas like search, which weren't really a big focus for us, right? But if you can do an intent-based search, then you can use the same type of NLP or conversational uh, platform. So if I search for you by name, maybe followed by a document, um, you know, what's the intent? Am I looking for the document or am I looking for you? And it depends on how I write the question. And of course, interpreting that is very similar to how I might interpret saying something like, um, you know, start a meeting or, uh, uh, you know, call Sebastian. So it's, it, it is, uh, it's, there's a very similar set of steps that happen. And then the output of that can be used for other purposes than just the interaction with a person like search or like uh, something else. So, um, uh, yeah, it was interesting to see, to see uh, how it was used. But our, yeah, our intent really there uh, was to contribute back to the uh, open source uh, industry in general and just promote the use of natural language processing. And and also there's an element of just openness and extensibility. You know, we, we're introducing right now uh, extensions to WebEx Assistant uh, so that you can do things other than just the basic collaboration pieces. Like, say, as we return to offices, if you want to develop an extension that would allow you to order from the cafeteria in the, in the same office for a contactless uh, experience, right? So you can order maybe uh, something from a menu uh, by speech, and then you can go and collect it with just like a, a tap uh, of a credit card or an employee badge, and the food is just left out there for you. These types of things, the collaboration system could end up being at the, the core of safe return to office in some of those uh, types of, of scenarios. So as well as those extensions in WebEx Assistant, we also thought that maybe people would want to just outright develop some of their own solutions. But when you put the two of them together, you can get a pretty strong end-to-end -end conversational uh, flow with use of WebEx Assistant, use of its extensions, um, and completely you know, developing uh, your own uh, bot or a speech-based uh, system. Cool. Um, are you still put further investments in the open source kit? of MindMeld? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's nothing has changed from a MindMeld uh, perspective on, on our side. The same team, the MindMeld team in San Francisco, um, you know, are, are, are still like they're, we're in, I'm in the same team as them. It's the same group. Um, uh, they're working, you know, uh, as hard as you can imagine to develop and continue with uh, WebEx Assistant. It's based on the MindMeld, what was originally called MindMeld Workbench. And uh, we continue to contribute uh, back to, to, to that uh, as we go. So, yeah, it's absolutely um, uh, still developed at a strong pace in-house. Thank you. Okay. With um, collaboration and uh, deep collaboration and integration between Apple and uh, Cisco, like, uh, why don't we see more and more integration between the endpoints and the cognitive uh, collaboration with Siri? Yeah, I mean, we could we could see more in that space. Who knows? So we'd have to look at uh, you know at, at say the the business case or use case around that. Um, I would I would point out that there are a certain amount of integrations already done, not necessarily from the devices or from WebEx, but if you go to help.webex.com and search for uh, Siri, yeah, you'll see that there are ways of um, enhancing the experience of Siri with WebEx. Like if you just want to use say your you know your iPhone to join a meeting or something like that uh, directly. So there's certainly a starting point there. 
And yeah, I think uh, Amir, there, there's there's certainly more that we could uh, we could look into in a lot of cases. And what that's actually uh, br brings up as an interesting question is uh, we do have uh, a strategy around a multi-assistant. Uh, it's not something that we've necessarily had to go um, uh, execute on in in any big way because the we didn't see like a lot of requirement uh, out there from customers for integrating with some of the consumer assistants. It's not something that in a business environment that there uh, there tends to be a, a lot of requirement for uh, at all. However, we do see it in the home environment because people often have those consumer assistants in the, um, you know, in, in maybe in their uh, home office or other environment. They may want to do something like, uh, you know, maybe like uh, fetch a meeting recording and play it back. S similar as you might do with a, like a recipe for food or, or something like that, right? So there's certain use cases and interactions like that that um, are already enabled and again with some of the more popular consumer assistants are integrated more on the webex app side um, on the mobile devices than uh, you know than from webex assistant itself um, but it's an it's an area that we uh, continue to look at and continue to listen to uh, to customers and uh, you know if that demand is uh, is is there it's something certainly that uh, that we can take a look at in more detail Okay. Uh, with the current change of um, the way we work because of the pandemic, because you know everybody is working from home, how how can you see the cognitive collaboration will play a role in that, especially with the personal devices? Like you know, not everybody will can not every company can give everyone Dex, Dex, DX80 and Dex Pros. So how can you see the cognitive collaboration will will uh, play a role in the personal devices like um, like personal phone and um, laptops and all these things. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting area, and it's been at the center of really what uh, the team and I have been looking at over the the last year, coming up onto a year now. Right, we had a lot of these uh, cognitive features already in place in the portfolio, um, and we focused really on. Uh, two main areas as the pandemic hit. The very first one was empowering the remote worker, right? That's a really critical thing. Everybody suddenly had to be at home. It wasn't an optional thing in various different parts of the world. You just had to be at home and therefore you needed a good work from home environment and something that would would work. That started for most people with like just a, maybe a laptop and a mobile phone, right? It's remarkable um, that not, you know, it's easy to fall into the trap when you work in a collaboration organization. You think everybody just has all of these tools all of the time. We're, we're lucky from that perspective. All of us here are in the industry and we have all of these wonderful uh, tools available to us, um, but not not everybody is so fortunate with that, right? So, um, so we focus first on empowering the remote uh, worker and that's where critical functionality um, such as Babel Labs for noise removal came in, right? So suddenly the technologies were like back in 2017 when we developed noise detection, we didn't really take that a whole lot further from then. And the reason was we were mostly in offices and dogs weren't barking, right? So it was something that happened every now and then, but it, uh, you know, it wasn't like a, a, a majority type of use case. And suddenly when we're at home and especially as this thing hit, you know, into the, um, at least in the, the northern hemisphere, the spring and summertime, you know, people were working from home offices, you have garden equipment going outside, you have dogs barking, you have all sorts of distraction. And our goal was to see how could we really reduce or eliminate that distraction. So for the remote user, uh, areas like um, the virtual backgrounds we talked about earlier, uh, noise removal, um, and, and various other uh, tools came into play for that. 
and now uh, you know as we exited the last year we've started to change our focus towards an area that we've excelled with in the past which is in the office right we already have like excellent room uh, devices and room technology um, and we have uh, excellent intelligent uh, uh, features in there like uh, framing and so on and I wish if we weren't on uh, audio I could uh, show you all of this uh, you know using the the device that I'm on right now but using things like um, you know the uh, face detection and that's not recognition but just face detection to count the number of faces that are in a given space and maybe look at the distance between them relative to the number of people that are allowed in a room so if you think think about it your booking system will typically have as you book a room you'll see something like brackets and a number at the end so it might be like you know name of conference room bracket six so it's a six person conference room well if we detect like eight people there and we're under social distancing um something's not quite right there right and maybe that is something that uh should be used to inform the inform a cleaning crew that the room was used or maybe it was overpopulated uh and that that is something then that uh would re would require and result in a positive action to allow the building to be used as efficiently as possible and many of these features we've had in place for a long time but they were developed for an entirely different purpose and what i love about that is it put us in a position where we can use the features that are already there and make a difference uh, for this uh, hybrid workplace that that is likely to happen in the next few months um, where you know some people are in the office some people are at home and and if you think about that um, one of the things that we've all uh, learned and, and in some ways benefited from in, in the last uh, year or so is there's been a, what I would call a democratization of video or of collaboration. We're all the same. We're all individuals in a home environment on video in a, in a call. But what happens when some go back to the office? There's three or four people in a meeting room in the office and everybody else is in the individual mode like we're in right now. Um, you, we have to make decisions around that. Like, Who's the key stakeholder? Who's the person that's the subject of the uh, of the call? Uh, it might be one of the people in the meeting room. It might be one of the individuals at home. But you know, the, it, it, the system should be something that is absolutely inclusive for all and should give the best experience across the board. Not to it shouldn't favor a conference room or the, the home user, right? So it's something that we've got to take those experiences and the technology that, that we've already got in place and be able to uh, modify that and make it, uh, make it work um, so that it's, uh, it is an inclusive collaboration experience uh, for everybody. And like I said, the good news is we have that baseline technology in. We have uh, capabilities like um, the face detection, like face recognition, uh, and a whole bunch of uh, other um, uh, uh, technology that's there that we can, uh, you know, we can put to good use in these uh, scenarios. Cool. I've got uh, two questions for you. Um, I had to personally, I had to look up the word and the meaning of it, of the word cognitive. Can you a little bit uh, elaborate on, on the word and how it involves cognitive collaboration and, and what it means? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, back to the back to the history a little bit. Um, it's uh, it's funny back around the, the twenty fifteen time frame, I was getting a little bit fed up of referring to everything as machine learning or deep learning or graph or you know describing it by technology. And we were now getting into multiple use cases that it could be solved for. So I needed a way to uh, to try to describe that entire set of technologies. And like I mentioned earlier, um, I we previously had a focus on a set of technologies that we called contextual collaboration because we were bringing context text to users using graph and linked data and various other techniques 
So when we looked at these pillar areas of computer vision and of bots and assistants, we realized that, and, and I did, uh, just so that you know, I did the same as you did, and I looked up the dictionary definition and uh, realized, hey, that fits really well with what we're trying to do here. We're trying to have the system adapt. We're trying to have the system anticipate the need of a user. Um, and we're, it, it basically is carrying out some form of cognitive function. I don't want it, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not in uh, marketing, so I don't want to over-market the term. Um, but it's, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it performs a cognitive function, but that's not to say that it's, it's not intended to be something that describes every single possible, you know, cognitive interaction that, that may be possible. Um, but that's where, where the, the term came from. And when we used it to describe that functionality, we realized that, um, you know, customers got it and understood what that meant and what that set of functionality could do. Um, you know, uh, partner companies, analysts, the industry in general uh, looked at it and said, uh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense to describe it as a cognitive collaboration. We also sometimes use the term WebEx intelligence, and it refers to some of that feature set back to Amir's question of where it gets applied, not just in a device, but across all of, of WebEx. So sometimes you'll see us use those, uh, those terms interchangeably. Cool. Thank you very much. Um, we know what we have now from a feature set perspective. Um, if say we can look into the future in five years from now, what can we expect? What can we expect? Yeah, there's a lot of ways, a lot of different places we could take this. And um, you know, one of the areas we looked at right at the very beginning, um, and, and maybe I should have said this earlier when we talked about uh, uh, you know, this, the starting point, uh, that we, we came from, we started looking at, um, you know, could we create this cognitive brain, this, this sort of like this, this item that could really think on behalf of the, the user. And when I looked at that, I thought, you know, we could, but that's really getting into the realms of general AI. And, and that's something that, you know, is yet to be solved. And I don't even think that will be solved in, in five years, uh, certainly to the level of the sort of human or collaboration interaction. That's a long-term thing. And what we've got right now are some, uh, I, even though we see these as very advanced now, we will look back on this time as like starting point and very basic building blocks towards something that is a more general purpose AI solution, at least in the context of collaboration. Um, when it comes to really general AI, like for the human population, that's a much bigger thing. And again, I'm confident in that. I look at the industry, I look at the smart people and the companies and the focus that are on that. You see AI showing up everywhere. It's important to differentiate and get behind the marketing term AI and look at exactly what technologies uh, a given company or organization are using. But, you know, I'm very optimistic about that future. And when I look at uh, at our decision back at that time, to not pursue trying to do this general collaborative um, uh, brain type of function, I, I think that was a smart move. Um, our view was let's apply the technologies tactically to very specific areas, like those pillars that I mentioned earlier. And inside those pillars, there's, you know, there there are many areas. Like even in meeting transcription itself, there's a ton of breakout areas from there that we're focusing on at the moment. Um, that will just make it uh, better if you like you know if you can't attend a meeting to figure out what happened or even if you're in the meeting to assist you uh, with that so um, I think that was a smart move at the time to uh, effectively you know pick pick our battles pick our technology battles against the capabilities of the the, the state of the art in the, in the industry and and to your question about five years from now uh, certainly for me where I see things going is if you take those pillars that we've got 
um, we've established a really good uh, capability in each of the areas. So we have a very strong virtual assistant with WebEx Assistant. It's able to take meeting notes. It can do you know pre and post uh, meeting uh, work. We have a really um, uh, clever computer vision solutions that I that I mentioned. Uh, we've got really strong relationship intelligence, and then we on the meeting uh, the audio and speech technology side, you've got transcription, which moves into WebEx Assistant, and you've also got noise removal. So immediately, I think what we start seeing is the combination of some of these technologies, right? So uh, one of the things we announced back at WebEx One in December was another computer vision feature called um, gesture reactions, right? So if I uh, if I give a gesture, uh, make a gesture of some sort, like a thumbs up, we would see that then uh, you know float up on the on the screen. So that's a combination of the regular meeting experience and uh, computer vision technique. Um, but you know what? What if we can also just use like face recognition? So you have face recognition and gesture, and it's, it can show Keith gave thumbs up. So now you have identity tied to that, and you could have that locked into um, you know a, a, a bigger solution. So I I start I, I think that what we'll see is the combinations of some of these technologies. Um, that's certainly a, a focus for us. And then five years is always tough, right? So who knows uh, what way things will truly go? But one thing I would say. Uh, with certainty is that this technology set is here to stay. It will evolve. I think it will evolve towards the unsupervised and semi-supervised uh, techniques that will open up even more uh, capabilities. I think integrating with customer data uh, for those unsupervised techniques is going to be even more important, right? So if I make a system like WebEx Assistant, it's, it's a smart uh, assistant no matter where it is. But if it, we want really like true intelligence in that, it has to be very aware of the environment that it goes into. And that means deeper integration into any given customer environment or organization. So that's something that I, I see maybe happening uh, within that, that five-year period as well. So Keith, what is uh, in the last five years, what is it that you're most proud of uh, from your work at Cisco? Um, it's one simple thing and it's people. Uh, so I think it is, you know, setting out the strategy in some ways was easy. Uh, you know, convincing the company to be able to spend and acquire in a number of different areas and then being able to assemble the team from those individual companies to be able to work together on a, a very combined uh, roadmap that we've got for the cognitive collaboration space. Um, uh, considering at the beginning, we were starting from just like a handful of people that, that knew something about machine learning. And I, and I wasn't one of those. I mean, I came from like a, a, you know, a different background in web and real-time communications with some of that graph-based technique. And I just saw the machine learning piece. Um, so I had to re-educate. I had to learn uh, more about that space. So it was, was really about bringing those teams of people in and so looking back on that, um, the, the thing I'm most proud of by far is the, is the team and what the, in combination everybody has been able to achieve. I think the short and correct answer was this podcast. <laughs> all, cul all culminating, of course, in this podcast. Thanks to the team. <laughs> all right. Well, no surprise. This has been another great episode of Cisco Champion Radio. I want to thank all of you out there for listening in today. And obviously, a very special thank you to our guest and Cisco Champions for being a part of today's episode. Again, if you want to learn more about today's topic, just click on the link provided in the description below. And just a reminder, you could su subscribe to Cisco Champion Radio on your favorite streaming platform and receive alerts on our latest releases. So wherever you're listening to us, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button now. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. See you next Monday.